Hi, it's Jonathan. Welcome to episode 87. We're going to be talking a lot more about cassette machines and reel-to-reel machines. There are more accessibility problems with Facebook, but I'm interested in why you're using Facebook at all still. Eating in public in a dignified way when you're blind and more. You're very welcome to contribute to the podcast, and there are two ways to do it. You can drop me an email to Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com. You can write something in that email, or you can attach an audio recording using anything that records and that you can attach to an email. You can also call the listener line. That number is in the United States. It's 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736, and record a message that could be included in the podcast. Concise contributions always help. We can't include everything because of the volume of contributions we receive. And please note that if we do use your content, we reserve the right to edit it for clarity and brevity. You can follow Mosin at Large, all one word, on Twitter to join the conversation with other listeners, to get sneak peeks about what's coming up on the podcast. And I regularly tweet links that I think will be of interest to Mosin at Large listeners. To keep up to date with Mosin at Large and radio-related activities I'm doing, you can subscribe to our media email list. It's announcements only, and the traffic is very light. To do that, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at mosin.org. The podcast version of this show contains extracts from the full version, which is heard live on Mushroom FM at mushroomfm.com and anywhere that you listen to radio stations at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on a Saturday afternoon. For the full Mosin at Large experience, I encourage you to be part of that community. And finally, before we get into the episode this week, a reminder that this podcast is long, and to help you navigate past the bits that you aren't interested in to the bits that you are, it's segmented by chapters. If you have a podcast app capable of supporting chapters, and many on iOS and Android do this, you can skip between segments of the show. Welcome, welcome. The rain is pouring down as I put this show together, but nonetheless, we have got that summery feeling because we've got a little bit of summer weather popping in from time to time, and cricket is back. On Friday night, New Zealand played its first cricket match of the season It was a 2020 game against the West Indies, and it stopped and started a bit because of the rain, but we did get a game in, and we won! Yes! Squee! We're playing another game later, weather permitting, and all that stuff. So, it's that summery feeling, Christmas is just around the corner, and yeah, life is good, we've just all got to keep working. For a little while longer, I have to say that for many people, I don't think there's a lot of gas left in the tank, if you know what I mean. It has been quite an extraordinary year, although we are in New Zealand very grateful for the way that we have come through that extraordinary year. If you have just been celebrating Thanksgiving, which they've been doing in the United States, I hope you had a good Thanksgiving, that it was a socially distant one and a responsible one, but enjoyable nonetheless, as enjoyable as the circumstances will allow anyway, or should allow. I think Thanksgiving is a fantastic holiday. It is something that I really love about America, that there is this time when you are supposed to give gratitude for all you have, for family and friends, and just count the blessings in life. And in difficult times, that is a wonderful thing to do. In fact, I have taken up a few years ago keeping a gratitude journal, and I find that very helpful. There is a cautionary tale, though, which I guess should be borne in mind. I read Ariana Huffington's publication, Thrive, 
If you haven't read her book called Thrive, it's a self-help powerhouse. And she now has this website called Thrive, where they publish a range of really useful tips on everything from meditation to just getting on with people. It's really good. And on Thrive, they made the point that one of the dangers of Thanksgiving is that you leave all your gratitude giving for one day and then forget the gratitude process the rest of the year. And I think that's a good point. So hopefully people will get the gratitude bug and realize how good it makes them feel, how much of a perspective it gives you, and practice gratitude for the rest of the year and keep a gratitude journal. But Thanksgiving is a great holiday. I love it. And it introduced me to pumpkin pie because here in New Zealand, we put pumpkin on the plate with the roast veggies. You know, it's it's cooked and you have it as part of a main meal. It's not a dessert food. So I couldn't imagine what pumpkin pie would be like. But when I tried it at my first US Thanksgiving, I thought, yeah, actually, this is pretty good. Now, one thing I wrote in my gratitude journal that I'm grateful for is that I found something that was lost, but after a lot of stress. Now, you know, I'm in my 50s now, so perhaps this is what they call a senior moment or something, but I like to think that I'm in pretty good shape (laughs) and that maybe I'm just really busy at the moment. And as I said earlier, there's not a lot of gas in the tank after managing an organization through the pandemic. I'd like to think that's what it is. But I'll tell you this because it's frustrating. When I was a kid, by the way, I used to have this really quaint notion that maybe there was somewhere a land, a great land where all lost things lived. So that when you lost something, it would go to this land. And if we could only find that land, we'd find everything we we ever lost. Now, if you are listening to this show on Mushroom FM, as part of the show today, we're going to give you part one of the Amazon Fire TV review and it starts off with setting up an hdmi extender thingy and then installing the amazon fire tv we'll run part two probably next week and then after that we'll put both parts out as a single podcast episode for those of you who listen on the podcast now we recorded part one some time back well maybe a few weeks back and heidi came over and we did this together and you'll hear that soon if you're listening on mushroom fm today And then I thought, I'll use this for a bit, and then I'll get my Zoom F6, and we'll cable everything up, and we'll do a really nice recording of the Amazon Fire TV in action, and that will be part two. And I had a little bit of spare time, and I decided, okay, I am going to record part two this weekend, because this coming week is crazy busy for me. You would not believe. So I fussicked around in my little cable drawers, which Heidi helped me organize. I've got these drawers, kind of plastic thingies, you know, that that pull out and they have braille labels on and you have different cable types in different drawers. So I have one that has audio cables and another that just has RCA cables because I seem to have a lot of those and then one for Ethernet cables and on it goes. It's a really good system. So I knew exactly where I was going to find the cables I needed which were two cables that have XLR at one end and RCA at the other. This is so I can plug the cables into my Zoom F6, which I have to say on the subject of gratitude is one of the best things I have ever bought. Thank you, Gary O'Donoghue, for turning me on to it. I really like the Zoom F6. I can record all sorts of things in confidence, knowing that I'm not over-modulating because 
Sometimes with my hearing, it can be difficult for me to hear clipping. And with this, I know I'm not going to be clipping. So it's just wonderful. I really dig this machine. Anyway, so I rummaged around, ready to do the recording in the RCA drawer, and I could only find one of these cables. And I wanted to because I want to give you stereo. I'm not going to record this thing in mono when we're going to be showing you all sorts of previews of movies and things that are really well mixed. And I knew I had to because I've done this before. I've recorded demos. The last one was a Samsung TV. So I know I have a second one and I could not find it. And it was really irritating the soup out of me. Yes, I know that's very strong language, but it was irritating the soup out of me because I couldn't find the jolly gosh darn it cable. And I took the studio apart I groveled around on the floor thinking, well, if I pulled one out, maybe one fell out of the drawer. You know how it is. And I couldn't find it anywhere. I I went upstairs because I thought, okay, I do remember having it connected to the Sonos ports. And oh, man, I, I could not find this thing. And I was getting really frustrated. And in the end, I gave up and I called Heidi and I said, if you have some time, I cannot find this cable anywhere. I've been searching for a very long time. If you want to come over and help me find it, I'll buy you lunch. <laughs> Food always does the trick. So she said, okay. And I Ubered her over as well. We've got the Uber family profile. That is a really cool thing about Uber, by the way, is you can give your kids or family members or whatever access to your Uber so that they can take a trip and you pay. And I like that because I like knowing that if my kids get into any bother or anything like that, they can Uber out of that bother and I will pay. They don't have to worry about whether they have the funds. And also they can come over here, of course. So Heidi came over here in an Uber and she fossicked around and rummaged around and she got into the groove as well. It was bothering her. In the end, we just could not think of where it might be. We ransacked the place. That's what we did and could not find it. So I contacted my favorite audio supply people called Rubber Monkey. They know me well and they overnighted me another couple. I thought I'll buy two of these cables and I'll have them just on hand if ever I need them. They're long cables by the way because I need them to be long. They're about 10 feet long. Then I said to Heidi while you're here Let's go and do a couple of things. We want to do a bit of shopping. You want to come with me? And she said, yes, that's fine. So we went to the mall. And in the Uber, I suddenly said, I know where it is. <laughs> We'd been searching for so long. And I suddenly said, I know where it is. It's in my backpack. Because recently I recorded the Workbridge. That's the organization I work for. The Workbridge AGM. And I took one of these cables because we only needed mono out of the mixer at the hotel that the AGM was at. And I took my Zoom F6 and I recorded it and got a pretty good recording of the AGM, which we used on the Workbridge podcast. And I put the Zoom F6 back where it normally lives in this really cool little case that has all sorts of cables and mics and everything. It's basically my recording equipment case so I can go on the road with a very good quality recording set of gear and record anything anywhere. But I did not put that cable back where it belonged. And I think the moral of that story is that if you just let it go for a while, dude, let it go. Yeah, let it go. 
then it comes back. You know, you, you, you suddenly remember what you've forgotten. What a frustrating experience. I hope I don't have too many of those senior moments, but it's been a long year. It's been a long year. Now, I want to tell you about a couple of things that are coming up that you might like to be aware of. They are related things. On the 8th of December, it'll be 40 years since John Lennon's assassination. And even if you've listened to me in passing, you will know how important the Beatles are in my life. I actually don't think I've ever been the same. I can't get over that. I've, um, I just, I just really can't. It, uh, it, it, uh, I, I don't have the words to articulate what that day was like. We did a uh, Mosin at Large episode called Flashbulb Moments. I think it's all the way back in episode two. And flashbulb moments are those moments where something happens, you just don't forget. It's like branded into your memory, into your brain, and you remember it like it was yesterday. You remember every vivid detail. On Mushroom FM, on the 8th of December, we are going to dedicate 24 hours of programming to remembering John Lennon with and without the Beatles. And we'll have plenty of interesting programming there. Whether you're a diehard Beatles fan or somebody who'd like to learn a bit about what the fuss was about, then I hope that you'll tune into Mushroom FM during that 24-hour period. It's going to be a great lineup of programming. I will be a part of it, but it will be pre-recorded because there's lots going on for me around that period. My youngest daughter, Nicola, is graduating from high school. That's very exciting. And Heidi, who's well known to podcast listeners, is graduating with honors with her electrical engineering degree. And that's where I'll be at her graduation ceremony when we wrap up the John Lennon programming. So I'll do it in advance. And so what I'd like to do next week is get your memories. If you have any memories of the Beatles, if you're old enough to go back that far, if you saw them in concert, if you just bought their albums and their music means a lot to you, it would be great to know what your favourite Beatle album is and why. That's quite a complex question too, actually, because the Beatle albums in North America were different mixes and even in the early days, different track listings. So, for example, the Rubber Soul album that Americans grew up with is not the Rubber Soul album that was released in the UK and much of the rest of the world. It all makes for fascinating Beatle geekdom. And of course, John Lennon making music in the 70s and that day. If you have memories of where you were, how you heard on December the 8th, 1980, and what it meant to you, then please do feel free to share those for next week's Mosin at Large episode, since normally we'd make that a part of the 8th of December stuff, but I won't be able to do it live by all means, get your comments in right throughout the week via the usual channels to jonathan at mushroomfm.com with an audio attachment or an email. And the listener line number, of course, 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736. We will play your John Lennon and Beatle recollections and memories on next week's edition of Mosin at Large. I would love to get them. Thank you so much in advance if you choose to contribute them. Now, before we get on to a lot of amazing tape recorder geekdom, <laughs> I'm sure you'll enjoy that. I've got a book recommendation for you. I heard an interview with a guy called James Nestor. His last name is N-E-S-T-O-R, James Nestor. I've heard a couple of interviews with him now, actually. 
and he wrote a book called Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art. And I know a lot about the power of breath because I've been meditating for a few years now, and mindfulness meditation does a lot on breath work. But there were things that James Nestor was saying that really interested me, and I thought I'd like to read this book. And then I got the book, and I thought, man, this is not going to be an interesting read, because it's a reasonable size. And I thought, how can you write this much about breath? But it is actually one of the most enthralling reads I have read in a long time. So it's called Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art by James Nestor. And I'll tell you the synopsis. It says, no matter what you eat, how much you exercise, how skinny or young or wise you are, none of it matters if you're not breathing properly. There is nothing more essential to our health and well-being than breathing. Take air in, let it out, repeat 25,000 times a day. Yet as a species, humans have lost the ability to breathe correctly with grave consequences. Journalist James Nestor travels the world to figure out what went wrong and how to fix it. It really is a remarkable book, and if you're interested in improving your life through a few really simple hacks, they're free hacks as well, other than perhaps the mouth tape you might want to try to close your mouth at night, then give it a read. Breath by James Nestor. Once again, we have plenty of comments on this tape recorder subject that Andrew Ribsha started us on last week. Thanks, Andy. Hi, Jonathan, says Tristan Clare. I'm sending this message using my brand spanking new Mantis Q40, which I've just paired to my iPhone. I've only had it for a couple of days. This was actually last week that we got this. And in fact, you have the dubious honor to be the first person I've emailed using this very cool piece of tech. Wow, I'm super honored, Tristan. Thank you. I'm writing to weigh in on the topic of tape recorders and soundscapes in general. Ever since we were kids, my brother and I have been fascinated with recording. It wasn't a blind person who got us interested in it, though, but our older cousin who was sighted. I doubt she thought much about it at the time, but she was the first person to show us that it was possible to record human voices and sounds onto a blank tape. We were both hooked and proceeded to record everything we could. We got all our friends, both blind and sighted, interested in recording as well. When we were a bit older, we used to record songs off the radio. It was cheaper than buying singles from the record shop and you didn't have to wait months for compilation tapes to come out. The only bad thing was when some sadistic DJ talked over the beginning of your favourite song that you'd been listening out for all day. Talk about frustrating. Although I now get my music from streaming services such as Spotify, I have rediscovered the joy of recording since the advent of the Apple Watch. Anyone who is friends with me will be familiar with my soundscapes. I love to record ambient noises, rain, thunderstorms, traffic, birdsong, and anything else interesting that I might hear. My last one was the sound of my cane tip 
rolling over various drain covers on the footpath. That is such a blind thing to do. (laughs) She says that each one was a slightly different pitch. And for some reason, I think maybe because I have a new cane tip that has slightly more grip than my old one, I got this cool, tuneful effect that I had to share. I hope I never get over the joy of recording. It's akin to a sighted person taking a photo in order to preserve a memory. To Texas we go, where Kathy Blackburn says, I received my first tape recorder when I began attending public school in seventh grade. As best I can remember, the machine was made by General Electric. It took cartridges rather than reels of tape. The cartridges were smaller than a VCR tape, but were about as thick as the cassettes that became popular later. That machine got me through junior high, I think. Next came the Sony 105 reel-to-reel machine, which I used through high school and college. I did use scholarship money to buy a Sony TC100 cassette recorder when I started at the University of Texas so I could record class lectures. I really don't miss the problems we had with tapes getting twisted, tangled with the recording head, or broken altogether. Ah, memories, memories. And staying in Texas, but a different part, we go to Monica's Fopa now. She says, Hi Jonathan, I hope you, Bonnie, and the kids are doing awesome. Regarding tape recorder memories, when I lived in New York, I remember our house having an intercom system, and there were speakers in every room. Wow, that's cool. I'd love that. I would play a particular radio station, Z100, and would take my cassette recorder and hold it to the intercom to record my favorite top 40 songs. I also remember getting a boombox, which had both AM and FM radio, along with two cassette players. One for recording and the other was for playing cassettes. It also had the high-speed dubbing, which I loved using. I spent hours with that boombox and loved every minute of it. In New Zealand, we used to call them ghetto blasters. <laughs> I, I have not heard that word being used in an American context, so I think it must be a New Zealandism. I don't know whether they called them ghetto blasters in Australia or not. But Stan Luttrell says one of my favorite recording devices was the Sony 105 reel-to-reel tape machines. There are many radio people that loved them. One of my Bay Area friends owns my own unit. He uses my old unit for parts for his machine. Oh no, it's been cannibalized. One of my first cassette recorders was one that had a built-in radio recorder. You could actually record off the radio. It was made by a company called Craig. There was only one little problem. The dial had a string where the dial moved up and down the dial Once you got to either the upper and lower end of the dial, you couldn't change the station because the mechanism would mess up. It made some great recordings. Yeah, I remember several radios that had that kind of string approach to tuning, and sometimes they would go pretty wonky after a while. Tone Matheson is in touch from Norway. She says, hello, Jonathan. It is a long time since I wrote last time. COVID in Norway is again growing worse and I find it scary, even if I know we are lucky here. I want to say a big thank you to you for doing your shows and helping all of us here around the world, learning and building on each other's experiences. Yes, I too was one of those blind children who had lots of fun 
recording, playing recordings, and going on. My parents did a short recording with me when I was three, and I still have this. I also have recordings of my grandparents, even one of my granddad singing, and he was really good. And in summers, my friend brought a small cassette recorder on holiday and recorded things for me, like letters just in sound. My best friend, actually named like your daughter Heidi, often was reading books and articles on cassette for me to listen to. As a grown-up, she made her first work from reading and stated that reading for me trained her for the job. I love that. I don't don't remember the actual names and models of cassette decks that I used to have, but I did own several during my younger years. I did have a couple of... uh, I did have a Walkman, and uh, I've still got some cassettes in my drawer right now. I did have a cassette player, single deck and CD, but the radio wasn't going and the tape heads were sticking out, CD player was broken, so I got rid of it. And uh, I've got some some Alka singles that I got from the 90s. I uh, also got some mixes that I I collected from my school days. I got a couple of mixes that I got from uh, Laura. Laura, he used to, we used to to give him 90-minute tapes and he would do do mixes of uh, beat mixing. The early days of uh, mixtapes. And I still got them. Haven't played them in a long time. I think I should get me one of these uh, digitizer machines so I can put all these cassettes onto a onto my computer so I can preserve them forever. They've also got a couple of cassettes things on cassette of recordings off the radio, such as old old ads, old musical Music stings that news talks B used to play during or just as before after the ads. News talks B would play the little musical sting during the overnight show. I'd record that, and I also got a cassette of uh, a supernatural program that uh, I used to listen to in 1994, 95. And uh, Anthony and uh, I had a recording of uh, Anthony. Uh, Singing, I say I don't have it anymore, but uh, there was a cassette that I had that uh, he that uh, he won a prize on this particular radio show. I uh, used to record myself at Homai on trips. I'd sneak my tape recorder out and I'd record. And we also used to play what was what we used to call Radio Oak Tree. We used to play radio stations with a couple of cassette decks. Had one out in the hallway and, uh, had another one in one of the rooms and we'd just hook it up and we'd, we'd play radio stations in the hostels with a couple of cassette deck, with a couple, a couple of cassette decks. Yes, we've talked about the high speed dubbing twin cassette decks, but of course, as CDs became more prominent and more affordable, you could get cassette decks that had a CD as well. And if you could get one that had the two cassette decks, 
an AMFM radio, maybe a mic for the karaoke and a CD. Whoa, that was top of the line. Jonathan, hello. This is Gary O'Donoghue, very much enjoying your discussion about old tape recorders. I too had one of those APH machines with the four tracks, etc., etc. From memory, were they rechargeable? Was there a was it was there a built-in battery, which must have been quite extraordinary from that era, where you can charge them up and use them on battery? That's part of my memory. I do remember you mentioned the idea of a a machine that you could change the pitch on quite early on, and I do remember in the early nineteen eighties, uh, a group of us got hold of some machines that were smaller than the APH. Uh, I don't think they were four track, but they did have. I mean, if you put them on the desk in front of you, they it was like a, a hardback book, but with the spine towards you, so it was wider than it was widthwise. And on the front left edge, it had two sliders that went across the machine, one of which changed uh, speed and one of which would attempt to change the pitch. And as you say, goodness knows what the technology was in those. And we certainly used those to listen to R&IB student library books at school, which were recorded on two-track, largely un- un- unlike the RFB uh, books in the States at the time, which were all on four-track. I do remember that. The one thing I wanted to add into the mix was that uh, certainly at my school, there was a huge snobbery about the kind of cons- cassette tapes that you would use to record things. So, you know, if you if you were regarded yourself as an audiophile, you wouldn't buy anything less than TDK tapes for example and you could recognize those because they had a uh, a window uh, between the two round real uh, sort of holes on the cassette that was slightly recessed but was as wide as the as the circles as the, the recessed uh, the recessed window was was as, was as wide as the circles so you could always spot a tdk tape you could spot a basf tape because its window was kind of flush with the casing of the cassette tape and had writing on it. And then I think there was one which was more expensive called Maxell from memory. And then there would be, you know, the question of, you know, would you ever bother to buy a metal cassette tape? Because that was very, very posh. And, you know, if you were regarded yourself as a real audiophile, you'd, you'd spend the money on metal tapes or a packet of metal C90s, as uh, we used to call them. Um, and you're always told, uh, or you always had this belief, that you really shouldn't buy C120s because there was a danger, there was much more danger that they would snap and stretch and all that kind of thing. So the audio files would, would uh, say, no, you can't possibly buy C120s. Although I used to buy them to record football matches because um, uh, there might be extra time or whatever and I needed to make sure I had enough space. And uh, somewhere, and one day I'll seek this out, I do have some recordings of football matches from... I mean, I think I, I definitely have somewhere the 1978 World Cup that I recorded um, on what you would call, or what we used to call at home, our music centre, which was a kind of all-in-one cassette record deck tuner um, made by Ferguson or someone like that. Dreadful, no doubt. But at the time, it was absolutely marvellous. Great reminiscences. I had a handy cassette as well, like one of your correspondents was mentioning. They were, they were incredibly good. All sorts of, of, of great memories. I remember the first reel-to-reel machine I bought was a TIAC, and it was a beast. It was, you know, it was huge and heavy and would stand vertically uh, you know, with the sort of reels facing out 
towards the room. And of course, when I started in radio, um, I learned to edit on quarter inch tape. So I would, you know, use a chinograph pencil and I would mark the place on the on the tape where I wanted to make an edit. And I would mark the second place. Uh, and you could feel these chinograph marks on the back of the tape. I had a little splicing machine that sat on top of the the sort of uh, the, the the covering for the heads. It was an old film splicing machine, uh, uh, and I would put the the tape in into half of that, and then sort of let the other half of the splice go down, and then move along to the other bit of tape. Put the bit of tape you'd cut out in your you know between your lips in case you wanted to redo the edit, and then this little lever would come over and splice the tape together. And that's how I edited, really, for the first uh, probably four or five years of my career at the BBC. And one got very quick at it. One got really very quick at it. Anyway, reminiscences, very interesting. Yes, it makes me want to get a little rubber band song out, you know. Boo, 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 boo. Gary, so many things to comment on there. I'll just comment on a couple of them. Yes, that's big old APH machine that had the equalisation on slow speed. That indeed did have a rechargeable battery, and it was a NICAD battery, nickel cadmium, and those things were really sensitive. And people of a certain age sometimes still think that you have to treat today's lithium-ion batteries in the same way that you did the NICAD batteries, because the NICAD batteries would develop a memory effect. So it was quite important to discharge them all the way and charge them all the way back up again or they would develop that memory effect and severely shorten their battery life quite quickly. These days, of course, if you do that with today's batteries, you'll get exactly the opposite effect. If you discharge all the way down and charge all the way up often enough, you're going to shorten the battery life because it's completely different technology. Now that you mention it, I do remember that little portable cassette recorder that had two slider knobs next to each other, one for pitch and one for speed. I don't remember what that was called. Wasn't that called the Handy Cassette? Maybe I'm wrong about that, but I do remember it now that you mention it. And yes, Maxell was my favorite brand of tape. BASF was my least. TIAC did some pretty nice cassettes as well. And not only could you get metal tapes, but you could also get chrome tapes. And I can't remember which was the better cassette. I think metal was better than chrome. And then you had whatever the normal cassette was called you know the normal boring one and I had a Philips cassette deck that I bought in 1984 and that was the first deck that I owned that had chrome metal and whatever the normal thing was called but it only had Dolby B later I had Dolby B and Dolby C and I also had DBX now if you recorded as I said last week on a metal tape with DBX the fidelity you got from that was actually really remarkable the lack of hiss the dynamic range, it was incredible. And yeah, we used to have a radiogram back in the 70s. That's what we called it. I think it was made by a company called Murphy. And that just had AM radio and a record player. And that is where I cut my teeth on music and listened to a lot of my uh, older siblings' Beatles albums and other singles and albums, that sort of thing. And then in 1981 at Christmas time, we got one of these Philips 3-in-1 cassette decks it was the second fm radio that we had in the house the first was on a little digital clock radio we still didn't have legal fm in new zealand in 1981 
and it had a little cassette deck that was okay. It had auto levels. You couldn't set the levels manually. But unfortunately, about a day after I got it, something really strange happened. I think it was to do with the bias or something like that, but it really started to sound horrible, just unlistenable when you recorded with it. So it had to be sent away. (laughs) But we had no trouble with it after that. Hello, Jonathan and fellow listeners. So first of all, thank you for putting together this great show and putting so much work into it, including several podcasts last week during the week. Anyway, you asked us to talk about tape recorders. Now, I did have tape recorders, but um, what I remember most uh, of one of them is the radio component that it had. So it was a a radio and it had a tape recorder. It was a huge device and I got it from my parents. So it had it was a device that they had been using before and then eventually gave it to me. And I was born in the GDR and probably the device was man- manufactured there. And the FM band was limited so as I know now, after having looked up um, FM bands on Wikipedia to to be able to tell the story, in Western Europe, we've got usually uh, the, the band is from 87 megahertz to 108 megahertz. And in the GDR, we had uh, at first also starting at 87 to 100 megahertz and later on it went to uh, 104 megahertz and I'm not sure what band this device had but anyway it had a limited band as a regular band goes to 108 megahertz so I had this device and used it to listen to the radio and I knew where different stations were and so on I guess many blind people will be able to relate to that and then the wall came down and eventually I got a new radio and I suddenly found that there were more stations and the, there was more space on the band. Uh, and uh, I found that one of the stations that I had been missing before without knowing it was a Western German news station. Now, I don't know if that was coincidence or not, because we were able to receive other Western German stations who were living close to the border. But those were music stations and the other one, the one that appeared on my new radio was a news station. And uh, I don't know if that was coincidence or not, but maybe it wasn't. And another thing related to radios in the GDR is when I went to the school for the blind, the radios that we had there, the dials were marked with pieces, little pieces of sticky tape. And they were put where you could see the the stations that you were allowed to listen to. So we had four stations, I think, that we could listen to or were allowed to listen to. And then, of course, there were other stations which you weren't supposed to listen to. And my dad tells me it was the same at the uh, the army. So radios were marked. And, uh, well, if if we at school would, would listen to something we shouldn't be, uh, if if a teacher came in, they would be able to see if we weren't or not immediately. And that's why lots of radios had sticky tape on them. Hi, Jonathan. It's Mae Thompson here. I just wanted to talk about tape recorders. I remember going on and on and on. My mum, oh, can I have a tape recorder? I mean, money would have been tight in these days. 
And then I bet you they would have had to pay it up. There was this guy that used to come to the house and they used to pay him. It was called tick. I don't know what you call it in New Zealand. But my mum, you know, they'd pay up a certain amount every week. And when I think about it, you know, I really appreciated the fact that they had to pay that up in order for me to get that tape recorder. But in these days, you know, probably that's how a lot of people got their stuff. But anyway, I think it was either a dance set or a grundig. I can't really remember the na- the make of it. But then long before, I must have been about 12 or something when I got my tape recorder. But long before that, a guy used to come to our house. And I remember I was only three and his name was Alistair. He was my auntie's boyfriend. And he would come with his tape recorder. And I distinctly remember him recording conversations because I remember saying I'm eating my porridge I think I was only three <laughs> and then um, he would play it back and they would record conversations if visitors came and then my dad he was well into recording when I got my tape recorder because it had four tracks and it used to record he would record it at a slow speed because remember, I think tape recorders had slow speeds, didn't they? And then, you know, and they played it back and it made you sound like the chipmunks. And we had a lot of fun with tape recorders. And I know that I used to, I took it to school, Grace will remember this, and I used to play, pick a, I used to record Pick of the Pops on it, I remember that much. And then I had a cassette after that. And then I seem to remember having a battery tape recorder quite a while after I got my electric one and I used to record the Clitheroe Kid on a Sunday night or a Monday night because it was repeat. It was repeated on the Monday night uh, it was on in the Sunday as well, Sunday afternoon and I would record that but no, I think blind people love tape recorders, didn't they? And I'm sure, I remember my mum singing on the tape recorder too I think she she sang about Red Roses for a Blue Lady. I remember her singing that song, and I think I was only five. I remember her singing that. But no, I definitely remember people coming to the house and all these conversations being recorded, and people didn't know they were being recorded. That's the thing. Hey, Jonathan, it's Tim Cummings, and I just wanted to share some of my tape recorder memories. My first tape recorder was a Panasonic portable tape recorder I got when I was about 10 years old. It had three jacks on it. It had a mic jack, headphone jack, these are 3.5 millimeter jacks, and a remote jack and a built-in condenser microphone. I love that recorder. I took it everywhere. I recorded my an interview with my grandfather on it, which I still have to this day, which I digitized, which came out pretty well. It was quite a nice recorder. It had a little bit of built-in motor noise because of the built-in microphone, but uh, it lasted a long time. I had it for a long time. And then in college, I had the famous American Printing House 3-51944 track recorder, which had four track recording, regular or slow speed recording, pitch restoration for playing back recordings, and a myriad of jacks on the front, line in, line out, earphone, headphone, mic jack, rechargeable battery. That was a great recorder. If anybody still has one of those recorders around, it was a uh, For its day, it was a great machine. Hi, Jonathan. Mike Moran here. And I'm so happy you brought up this topic. It brings back so many memories of my first reel-to-reel tape recorder. I was really fascinated by it. A friend of mine who was blind had one, and he was 
playing it for me over the phone and showing me what it could do. I was, I was a young lad, and uh, I got the same kind of recorder. It was a Pentron, a Pentron reel-to-reel recorder. And I remember every inch of that recorder. It had what looked like a lever, almost like a stick shift, of course, smaller. And left was rewind, right was fast forward, and down was play. And to get it to record, you had to push down the record button and then pull the lever down. I uh, also remember the uh, jacks. There was the microphone jack, the input jack for uh, direct. And at that time, you had to use alligator clips on these uh, pins that were on the speaker of the radio. And then there were two jacks, one for headphones and one for external speaker. I loved that machine, and I had so much fun with it. The microphone was very interesting. It was a flat mic. Well, not flat, but it looked like a box. And uh, it had what felt like a cloth cord on it, much like what you would find uh, on the old electrical wiring. I think it was called Tubex. Being a kid, I wasn't as gentle as I should have been, and sometimes the tape would break, and my mother would have to splice it together, and, you know, we weren't that wealthy, so I was supposed to take care of these tapes. And uh, every once in a while, something weird would happen with the machine, and it would record in an echo. So I guess something happened to the erase head. But what did I know at that time about erase heads and record heads and uh, playback heads? So there was also two speeds, three and a half. I think it was three and a half and seven and a half. I would record a lot of things off the radio as well as talking into the machine and saying things with my friends, doing little uh, skits or whatever we did. And once in a while, my uncles would come over and they were fascinated with it. My uncles played guitars and uh, my uncle Rocco would uh, come over. He was into playing flamenco guitar. My mother's side was Italian. So I had uncles like Petey, Tony, Mikey, and Rocco. How am I doing? So (laughs) I loved that machine. I even remember the power cord. The power cord was, you know, the vacuum cleaners that have, uh, it feels like a ridged rubber coating. Of course, it was two-prong in those days. Getting back to the microphone, I was always stretching it too far and pulling the wire, and then they had to take the sleeve down off the jack and, uh, I guess, splice the wire and put it back on the screws. And I had, to, in that time, what was an expensive toy for a kid my age and for a family with our income. But it was an inspiration for me because ever since I was four years old, I was pretending I was on the radio. So... I really enjoyed my Pentron tape recorder. Hello, this is Howard Goldstein in Connecticut. 
tape recorders, uh, one of my favorite subjects. The first tape recorder I ever had any experience with was my father's old Masco tape recorder that he got in the 1950s sometime. And this was a big, heavy monster of a machine, two-speed, two-track. It had horrible flutter. (laughs) But my father used to use it to record television programs that were on late at night and he would record them for us so we could listen to them the next day because we were usually asleep when these programs were on. And then he would also, several times a year, a big production, he would get the tape recorder out and my brother and I would record stuff like singing songs and telling jokes and my playing the piano and my brother's playing the guitar and things like that. Later on, but that, that of course, was really his tape recorder, so we, we couldn't really play with it that much. <laughs> Back, uh, well, later on, I obtained this very strange little portable tape recorder. It was called a Phonotrix. I think it was manufactured in Germany and sold by Sears in the United States. And this was a really unusual machine, three-inch reels, Uh, with a pinch roller and capstan, but the odd thing was that the heads faced toward the rear, so the tape had to be put on uh, with the shiny side toward the back rather than toward the front. And although the tape moved from left to right as usual, the reels turned clockwise. Very unusual machine, but it was fun to play with. I also had any number of these little tape recorders that were popular in the 1960s. They were more like children's toys. They had real nests that looked like rubber tires, no capstan, and so the tape speed was extremely variable and uh, uh, not very good fidelity. But I used to have fun just recording sounds and playing them for people and saying, see if you can guess what this is. (laughs) Not not exactly the most uh, artistic thing to do with tape, but uh, anyway, that's what I enjoyed. Uh, in 1966, I obtained what was, I've always considered my favorite tape recorder. Now, this was provided to me by the State Agency for the Blind, so I could listen to recorded books. Uh, recording for the Blind at that time was doing everything on open reel tape. The cassette had was just barely being invented at that time. This machine was a two-track, two-speed, open-reel machine with uh, its best feature was that it had separate line and mic input level controls, so I could actually do mixing on it. And when I discovered that, I just had a ball with it. I had so much fun with it. And unfortunately, I had to give it up in a few years later when... All the recorded books switched to four-track tapes, and the state provided me with a different machine, and they needed the old one back. But uh, that was that was really my favorite machine. Besides the using it for reading books, I made my own recordings. I used to like to record things at the high speed and then slow them down to see what they sounded like. I found that to be interesting, much more interesting to slow things down than to speed things up. In around 1967, I got my first cassette machine. Uh, it wasn't a very good one, but I used it in school, and uh, 
I've had any number of cassette machines, even a high-quality deck, but I was never as fond of cassettes as I was with open reel. There was just so much more you could do with open reel tape uh, than with cassettes. Uh, later on, I had some hi-fi open reel machines, a couple of uh, different Tanbergs, one of which I still have, but I don't think it still works. When I was in college, I used to hang around the college radio station and help out with production. And at that time, I really got into tape editing. I did all kinds of stuff with tape editing and just some fun things that I did for myself uh, that I was never brave enough to put on the air. One of them was a little background there was a program in the early 70s, I guess, that used to be broadcast on classical music stations and on college stations all over the place. It was called Music from Germany, and it always began exactly the same way. This man would say, hello, and how do you do? And at the end, he always ended exactly the same way by saying, and that is all for today. This is David Berger saying Auf Wiederhören until next week at the same time. Well, I got tired of hearing that every single week, so I decided to see if I could edit the tape and make him say something ridiculous. So I'll end with that. Hello, and that is all for today. This is until next week. At the same time. Well, hello everyone. Uh, Sarah Hillis here. I'm uh, just telling you about my first tape recorder, and I remember it very clearly. It was a Fisher Price tape recorder. It had four buttons on the top of it, which were play at the left, rewind, fast forward, and record. And rewind and fast forward, you couldn't hold them down. Like, or you had to hold them down to keep them engaged. They would just pop up if you didn't. That was very interesting. The eject button was on the left hand side. And there was a little tiny built-in microphone as well, of course. And it took batteries. I don't think it had an adapter of any sort. It took batteries. And four, uh, four C's, I do believe it took. <laughs> and uh, it, was, it, was, it was a big plastic... Well, to me it was big. It wasn't very big at all. But when I was four, it was, it was kind of big. And it was not, but it was carryable by a kid. And I remember we took it up to our cottage, or the cottage we rented that summer because it was the one portable tape deck that we had and it betrayed us because it chewed a tape and I had never heard it chew a tape before and I was just like really sad that it chewed a tape and that's the, the thing about this tape recorder is I do not remember getting it I just remember having it so I don't know when I got it but it was the one I remember having it, it must have been like a birthday or a Christmas present or something but yeah it was the first one I remember having, and I enjoyed it a lot, and subsequent tape recorders thereafter. Now, I can't tell who this one is from because only the email address is in the from field and not the name, but it says, Hello, Jonathan, I always love your podcasts. I wanted to tell you about my first tape recorder. It was in the early 1960s, and I paid about four bucks for it. It was rectangular with a carry handle knobs to rewind and fast forward, and as you can imagine, the sound quality was awful, but that didn't stop me from recording. 
I had a lot of the same reel-to-reel and cassette recorders that others have mentioned, but I had a super heavy webcore reel-to-reel recorder. My father bought it at Christmas for my sister and me to share, but she never used it, and I used it all the time. Splicing the tape when it broke was a real pain, and I must admit that I occasionally used scotch tape to splice the tape, which certainly was the lazy way to do it. Hello! This is Abby Taylor in Sheridan, Wyoming, and I would like to tell you about my experiences with tape recorders. Growing up in the 1960s and 1970s, I never could get the hang of using a reel-to-reel recorder. I just wasn't that mechanically inclined, so I was delighted when I was about let's see, 10, I think 9 or 10, I believe it was, my parents finally got me a cassette recorder. Now, this was just your basic recorder. It had a a microphone that you had to plug in it. They didn't have a built-in microphone. But I loved it. And one of the many things I used it for was for ballet classes. At the time, my neighbor's kids, our neighbor's kids were or, or well, I think was it both girls or one of them? I can't remember which. They had two daughters about my age. And one of them was taking ballet. Well, I wanted to take ballet. And so my mother found a teacher who was willing to work with me despite my visual impairment. And she not only worked with me privately before I started taking a class with her, but then she also recorded some of the moves along with some music for me to practice with at home. And I thought that was a really nice touch. And so I remember taking my little tape recorder into the kitchen, which had the hardwood floor, which is easier when you're practicing ballet. And, of course, I could use the kitchen counter as kind of a bar to hold on to. And so I practiced my ballet in the kitchen with that tape recorder, with her voice, you know, playing the music in the background and and telling me what to do. And it was was a lot of fun. Um, And I used it for other things, too. I got music cassettes, and I enjoyed listening to those. I think the first cassette I got was a Diana Ross album that had one of my favorite songs by her on it at the time, Love Child. And, um, of course, I did did do a lot of, you know, funny recordings with it. Oh, and my father and I were, later on when my father and I took Spanish uh, together, he bought either cassettes or records of, you know, Spanish lessons. And he would record the records on tape. And then I could, I could listen to them. And so that was, that was fun. Um, and through the years, I had several such recorders. I finally, in college, I was finally able to get one that had a built-in microphone. So I did not have to worry about plugging in a microphone when I wanted to record something. And, of course, I had the obligatory four-track tape players, which I enjoyed reading textbooks and talking books on. Eventually, you know, the compact discs came out, and so I started using those more often than cassettes. And then when I got, after I got married in 2005, my late husband, Bill, got me into these little, you know, somebody else mentioned these already, the little repurposed Talkman models, which were the, you know, four-track tape players, and I had a number of those, 
in the years that I was married to Bill because they didn't last very long. So I was always buying new ones and I enjoyed using those to listen to talking books and other things. And another thing I liked using tape recorders for was recording messages to friends and, you know, who were also blind and sending, exchanging, you know, tape, taped correspondence back and forth. Nowadays, of course, I don't use a tape recorder anymore. All my voice correspondence is via, or most of it anyway, is via iMessage on the iPhone. And all the books I read now are primarily, I read them on the iPhone, either with the voice stream reader for Bookshare and other types of books or Bard Mobile. And of course, music. I listen to music now with my Amazon Echo smart speaker. I get music from a variety of sources and enjoy listening to it that way. Thank you, Abby. Yes, we've come a long way, haven't we? You talking about messages to friends on tape reminds me that my brother had quite a collection of pen friends. And from time to time, we'd do these quite elaborate tapes that we'd send to pen friends overseas. And I was the sort of engineer, really, I think, for the most part. And we'd play different pieces of music and talk about what we were doing. But yeah, we did a lot of that sort of stuff. William Turner is in touch. He says, Hello, Jonathan. I appreciate and enjoy all that you have done for us over the years. I have learned a great deal listening to you. Thank you, William. I really appreciate that. He says, I worked for Sam's Club for many years as a demo associate. I had a small cart with a pizza oven, which I used to cook my samples. In addition to cooking and selling pizza, I made PA announcements in an attempt to entice our customers into buying our pizzas. I sound like Goma Pyle. I have a strong southern drawl. People would come up to my cart saying, was that you on the PA? Oh my God, where are you from? I would laugh and cut up with them. As a result, I made many friends. A couple of those friends knew that I was blind and asked me if I listened to audiobooks. I sure do, I replied. I listen to them all the time. Well, we have some that we would like to give you, the lady told me. This is turning into like a Harry Chapin story. Anyway, he continues. Wow, I truly appreciate your offer. I would love to add to my collection. We made arrangements to meet so that I could pick them up. To my shock and total surprise, they had two boxes which held 70 plastic trays of 15 90-minute cassettes. Some lady, I assume she was a mother or a wife, had read over 1,500 hours of westerns into the cassettes. I couldn't believe that anyone would be that dedicated. There was a problem, though. The lady was a horrible reader. She obviously was sick to death of this project, and she read as fast as she could without punctuation. She had a very monotone voice that made it really hard to pay attention to what she was reading. I admire her for her kindness in helping her blind kin, but it has always made me wonder if the one who was receiving the books thought, oh no, not another one. Everyone has had wonderful stories about their recorders and recordings. I wanted to share mine. Bruce Taves has quite a comprehensive account of APH recorders over the years. He says, I remember getting my first APH tape recorder. I think it was in 1976. The machines at that time had a rough plastic exterior. The tone indexing button was next to the jack panel 
under the handle. The jack panel from left to right, mini earphone jack, mono, quarter-inch headphone jack, ditto, microphone on-slash-off remote jack, mini microphone jack, auxiliary out jack, auxiliary in jack, and another jack on the extreme right, whose purpose I was never able to determine. When you plugged something into that jack, the machine slowed down just a little. If anyone knows the purpose of that jack, I'd like to hear about it. The speed control was a ridged wheel, all on the front of the unit. To the left of the tape door, there was a little compartment with a spring door for keeping odds and ends in. There was also a little plug housed in it, whose purpose, it was stated, was for tape erasing. What you did was plug it into the mic jack, and you'd be recording silence, since the mic jack disabled the internal microphone. The order of buttons from left to right was record, rewind, fast forward, play, pause, and stop. The only other switches were the volume and tone sliders, the side selector switch, and the switch to change from 1 and 7 eighths to 15 sixteenths speed. The cord receptacle was a square hole on the back on the same side as the odds and ends bay. It allowed for both playback and recording on all four tracks. The next incarnation I saw a few years later was identical to the first, except on this one the pause button had been replaced with a tone indexing button beside the stop button. I guess it was too difficult to access beside the jack panel. It allowed for playback of all four tracks, but its recording was only two-track, and it only recorded on the right-hand stereo channel. The next incarnation was the one that, as far as I know, was the longest-lasting. It had a smoother plastic case, and the metal handle had been replaced with plastic. The pause button had been restored, as had the ability to record on all four tracks. The odds and ends bay had been eliminated, along with the tape eraser plug. Where that had been was now a smooth surface which contained the tone indexing button and the speed control, which was now a slider. The condenser microphone had a switch in front of it that would switch it on and off, thus eliminating the need for the tape eraser plug. When the mic was switched off, you were also in monitor mode meaning you could listen to what was being recorded. This monitor mode, unfortunately, only had one volume setting, and I strongly believe this accounts largely for the hearing problem I have today. That aside, I loved this incarnation of the unit very much. After I stopped using tapes, a feature was added that used the turning of the reels to control auto-shut-off instead of the very unreliable pressure on a lever method. People may recall the old days when the tape would come to the end and you'd hear the click-click-click-click-click sound of the auto-shut-off feature not working. The ability to change the speed without the pitch, I think they called it variable speech, was also added, as were stereo headphone jacks. The quarter-inch headphone jack was also eliminated. That's as far as I ever followed the progress of the APH machines. The last one I actually owned was the model that was used throughout most of the 80s. You can wake up now, says Bruce, I'm finished. If that bored you to death, tune in to Mushroom... Oh, shameless plug. Tune in to Mushroom FM on December the 19th, right after Mosin at Large, for my Christmas novelty special. 
and you can have a great laugh instead. Jonathan Mosin, Mosin at Large Podcast. Are Mosin at Large listeners the most helpful people on the planet? Answer emphatically, yes. And because we don't make unsubstantiatable comments, I shall prove it by reading this message from Adi in India. He says, hi, Jonathan, one of the listeners of Mosin at Large was checking for recommendations for mini Bluetooth keyboards. I will recommend the iClever range of Bluetooth keyboards. These are foldable, small, and of good quality. I can vouch for this, actually. I have got an iClever from a few years back. It kind of hinges itself in a foldable way to be really compact, but then you unfold it with its various hinges, and it's quite a good size and comfortable to type on. Adi continues, Additionally, if you recollect, in the month of July 2020, ah, seems like so long ago now, we had a very interesting discussion on various Bluetooth keyboards. During that episode, I mentioned Revo, that's R-I-V-O, and then the number two, the Revo 2, as one of my suggestions. At that point in time, I did not have the Revo 2. Subsequently, a few weeks back, I got myself a Revo 2. If someone is willing to invest time in getting to use the product, Revo 2 is an excellent choice. This is much more than a Bluetooth keyboard and acts as a remote for our smartphones. It is a very interesting product and a lot of thought has gone into making this product. Thank you, Adi. As far as I understand it, I've not played with one of these, only read about them. The Revo 2 is not a QWERTY keyboard, is it? It's kind of like... For those of us who miss the old days of T9, and I missed my T9 input for a long time. This was where you had the keypad on the smartphone and it used a kind of a prediction algorithm to help you to text very fast if you got used to it on one of those keypads. And I missed it for ages before so many other alternative input methods became available on the iPhone. I believe it's a little bit like that. But if anybody wants to do a full description slash demo of the Revo 2, that would be really interesting because I'm very interested in learning a bit more about it. I appreciate you helping our listener out, Addy. And if anyone else has any Bluetooth keyboard recommendations, because there are so many out there, you are welcome to share them. I know that we did talk about this in July, but it's one of those topics that will come up from time to time. Thank you, Mike Kinnan uh, from BC. I just wanted to let you know that one thing I learned on Tuesday this week was that the NFC chip C chip in the iPhone is actually read and write compatible. And a lot of people don't know that you can read and write to it. And apparently there is an application, which I've never heard about until Tuesday, the 24th of November, is called NFC Tools. You can get that from the app store and that will allow you to read and write to the NFC chip in in the iPhone. Thanks, Angus. I had a look at this app and it appears that what it does, well, let me read the description from the app store, actually. And I haven't downloaded this yet to vouch for its accessibility. So your mileage may vary and all those good things. But the description says NFC tools can read and write NFC tags with a simple and lightweight user interface. By passing your device near any NFC chip, you can read the data it contains and interact with the content. 
The Read section allows you to see data such as the maker of the tag, the type of tag, the norm of the tag, the available technology, its serial number, the size of the tag, and of course the data on it, if you can write on the tag, all the data on the tag, etc. So it sounds like you can write to some writable tags. You can read a wide range of tags. It could be quite a useful tool to have in the toolbox, I guess. Bev Powers in touch again. Hi, Jonathan. A while back, there was another listener recommending a genealogy program called Ancestral Quest, AQ for short. I too am an avid genealogist and have used another well-known genealogy program. I have had so much difficulty with recent versions that I've given up. I have a couple of questions, if anyone knows. How accessible is AQ, particularly for a basic JAWS user? Are there other blind genealogists using said program? I've checked out the AQ website and think it's very compatible with other things my wife and I are doing. If anyone responds, you have my permission to give out my email address so people can contact me directly. Enjoy your podcasts and keep up the good work. Thank you, Bev. So there you go. If you are familiar with AQ Ancestral Quest, then get in touch. Let us know how accessible it is. Here's a comment going back to one of the favorite podcasts of mine that I've done because it could literally extend your life. And that's a pretty nice gift to give people, isn't it? Francois Jacobs is writing in. And he says, hi, Jonathan, I love your show and credit the episode you did on low carb, high fat for making me finally take the plunge. I've been on the ketogenic diet for a week now, and it feels like I'm getting some results already. Congratulations. One of the books by Jimmy Moore, which you recommended in the episode, led me to search for a keto meter because I want to figure out the kinds of food that my body can tolerate while achieving optimal health. I didn't want to deal with urine strips or blood tests, so the decision to go with a keto breath meter for me was easy. I thought of asking for recommendations from your listeners, but of course, I was too impatient. I knew it needed to have Bluetooth and a smartphone app to make the readings accessible, but I couldn't find anything that also included the search term accessible in any form. Based on online reviews, I wrote to two companies asking about voiceover accessibility and the responses I received again proves the business case for making products accessible to more people. I don't know whether you looked into Ketometers yourself, but in case you're interested, I include the email trail with the company I chose to spend my money with. Now, so for those interested in this, the product is called A keto breath sensor, the one to stay away from while they're working on, quote, the list, unquote, is called the Ketonics Bluetooth Ketone Analyzer. They had excellent reviews and would have been my first choice, but, of course, they're still working on the accessibility is basically what the email trail is saying. So thank you for that recommendation, Francois. I'm tempted to check this out. I have not gotten into the metering stuff because when I last looked, There really wasn't anything that I could tell was accessible. So I've learned to tell when I'm in ketosis by the sort of taste in your mouth. I know that sounds a bit nebulous, but being in ketosis definitely does have a taste. But what you're proposing is much more scientific, and I will provide a link 
to the product that you mentioned in the show notes for those who'd like to check it out. Good luck with your low-carb journey. I hope it fills you with as much vim and vigor and energy as it has me. Rebecca Skipper writes, I loved your review of the Mantis Braille display. Like you, I am faster at typing and find it much more intuitive. Since you have used the focus lot, can you tell me how I can make the best use of the scratch pad? I do not see word wrap as an option, so are there programs I can use to automatically create forced carriage returns so that I can get word wrap through document formatting? Do you find it hard to browse to files on the focus without first letter navigation? Well, Rebecca, I'd recommend going back into the FSCast archives. It must be a while ago now because I remember doing this episode where I was showing the Focus 40 Blue 5th generation. It was probably in the mid part of 2018, I'm thinking. And I did go through a number of utilities that you can run on your PC most of them free, I believe, which will take a file and then convert it to a contracted Braille file so that you can then send that to your Focus 40 and work with it in the scratch pad. There is also a way to get stuff that you've Brailled in the Focus 40 scratch pad into Microsoft Word, and that's a feature built into, I think, JAWS or the Focus. It's been a while since I had a look at this. The lack of word wrap is a huge deal in my view. That lack of word wrap really limits the utility of the scratch pad in that device a lot for me. And Francisco writes in, Hello, Jonathan. I would love to hear your impressions of the Mantis Q40 after several weeks of having it. Is it your primary Braille with an uppercase B tremendous display? Or did you have to get back to the Focus Blue to get something done? Hopefully, I will get a new display if the NFB convention happens in person, which display would you buy if you had to choose one? Well, I can say I am using the Mantis Q40 exclusively. I love it. As I said in my quite comprehensive review, it's not perfect. But what is? I tell you, I'm using Braille a lot more. I carry it upstairs with me and it's my Bluetooth keyboard for my iPhone when I'm just doing stuff. And because Braille is right there, I'm using it. I really do like this a lot, and it is my exclusive device. So if I had to pick one out of those that I've seen, I would pick the Mantis Q40. But of course, that very much depends on your personal preferences. Do you prefer QWERTY input to Braille input? I definitely do. So various things to consider, but definitely check it out and see what you make of it, if there is indeed an NFB convention in 2021. I know that Facebook has helped many people through the pandemic with all sorts of ways to get together, have little video sessions and just catch up with what people are doing. I felt so good when I got off Facebook. I think it must have been 2017. And then when I started working for Ira, I got back on Facebook at Ira's request so that I could manage some of the social media for them and just kept the account. Every so often I think of getting off there because I just deplore most of what they stand for and their ethics and that kind of stuff. But then there's a little part of me that says, ah, what am I missing out on? You know, the old FOMO fear of missing out. And so maybe when I'm on my summer holiday, which can't come a moment too soon, maybe I'll have a look and have a play on Facebook and make my final decision 
am I in or am I out? Now, someone who clearly is in is Tasha Kimmel. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, Tasha. She says, Dear Jonathan, I'm writing to raise awareness of an accessibility bug that is affecting voiceover users who are accessing Facebook on iOS. Recently, Facebook introduced a new feature in Groups where posts are automatically formatted as questions. These posts are accessible on the PC, but not on iOS. When you encounter them, VoiceOver will prompt you to do a two-finger double tap to interact with the post, but this does not actually allow you to read the question that has been asked, only the comments. Currently, the only workarounds are to turn on screen recognition or to run posts through an app like Seeing AI. But older iPhones don't have the screen recognition feature, and having to use a third-party app to access Facebook is patently ridiculous. Facebook's accessibility track record is pretty appalling. This most recent issue was just one more example of a bug that cuts blind users off from a large swath of content. There have been many of these, including the awesome text status snafu of 2018, where blind people were unable to read Facebook posts written on coloured backgrounds. The Facebook accessibility team has responded inconsistently when blind people report show-stopping bugs like this. Their responses have ranged from canned generalities to what seems like genuine efforts to get more information about the problem. However, the timeline for fixing bugs is often much slower than I would like, and from conversations I've had with the team, it appears that they have very little influence over the development cycle. This means that severe bugs are allowed to make it into releases and need to be fixed after the fact. When I have reached out to complain about the questions bug, both on the Facebook accessibility page and through Twitter, no one has responded and the bug has been around for at least a week now. I suggest that listeners should tweet at FBAccess, that's all one word, at FBAccess, and comment on the Facebook accessibility page. You can express your frustration about the questions bug, but also about Facebook's general disregard for accessibility. Bugs like these are just symptoms of a broken system. Facebook needs to improve their quality assurance and hire actually blind users to test betas of releases so that serious accessibility bugs never see the light of day. We deserve to be on Facebook just as much as sighted users, and Facebook needs to know that their treatment of us is unacceptable. That is from Tasha. Thank you, Tasha, for a very articulate email. And I guess we just don't know what goes on in these places behind the scenes, do we? Sometimes you have the accessibility team who are advocating quite strenuously behind the scenes, and they can't tell you that they're doing that because of all of the corporate stuff that goes on. And I do believe there are some blind people. I know one very prominent blind person who works for Facebook, and I have no doubt that blind people who do work there are doing what they can. But you're right, in the end, it's the product that we consume that is the determination of success. And if, despite all the efforts of people internally, these accessibility bugs are making it through on a regular basis and not being fixed in a timely manner, then we have every right to raise that issue and complain. And I hope those who care about Facebook do just that. If anyone has any comments on the whole Facebook accessibility experience, 
You're very welcome to share them. You might also like to tell me why you're still on there after all of the egregious privacy breaches and the disregard for your personal data and the algorithms that have really soured social discourse so much. Why are you hanging in there on Facebook? Hello, Jonathan. It's Gary. The first thing I want to chat about is dog versus kind versus guide robot. I think the robot will be very cool. I I, I would definitely want to get one of those. Uh, I'm no slouch with a cane, uh, but I find the cane slows me down compared to when I used to walk with my dog. Uh, in an in outside pavement environment, I used to move with my dog and the cane really slows me down and I get impatient. So if I walk as fast as I did walk, I've got a longer cane than I normally would have. Uh, but even so, you might have a bit of a misstep or something like that. I haven't got another dog since Perry died because, quite honestly, uh, he died in 2015. And I I can't see myself having another dog but him, another guy dog. I've got other pets. But there was something in the bond and something with him particularly that I can't seem to uh, get over. And I, I still get my days where I, I miss him. I miss him as... With that particular bond, I love my dogs. I've got dearly, but it's it's different. The bond is totally different. And I'm not trying to say that when it's his birthday or the anniversary of his death, I, I, I still get tears in my eyes, and I still, you know, I get emotional. I mean, even now, I can feel. It's it's not easy talking about it. And the irony was that, for years, he he was guiding me around and leading me where I wanted to go. And the last day, I was carrying him into the vet. And my dad was still with me that day. He took us through and he was just taking my neck and turning me left and right. Uh, and that was one of the things that hurt me the most. Um, so uh, getting back to the cane and the robot, there's a lot of things I would not know that was there if I didn't walk with a cane. I mean, there were permanent fixtures such as poles and things like that. I never knew they were there when I was walking with Barry. With a cane, you notice a lot more around you. I think you have to be a little bit more independent to use a cane to know exactly where to go, what to do, and make certain decisions that the dog, that the dog would make for you. You get people that say, oh, I don't want a dog because I've got to clean up after him and I've got to, you know, there's things I've got to do. I think that's a little bit cynical to look at it because if, if that's your feeling about having a dog and an animal that is devoting himself to you and that wants to work and that wants to help you, I think it's a little bit selfish. And you might as well say, well, you know, I'm not going to have any kids because, hell, I've got to change nappies or I've got to put them through school and I've got to do all that sort of things. So then again, to each his own. And I think people feel differently about different things. Uh, really, I, but as I said, I think a robot will be very cool. And if people are worrying about mechanical things that goes wrong, well, a mechanical thing can go wrong with your phone where you're using uh, GPS software or anything like that. Your cane can break. Something can happen to you. So there's always a risk of something happening somewhere. So I would say take the plunge and go for it. If nothing else, it'll be very exciting just because it's something new techie and it's it'll be very impressive to show people. And you know, so I would definitely, definitely do it. I would like to talk about your mixer. You mentioned you've got a 20-something channel mixer. I was doing a little bit of pondering about this whole thing. I was pondering. I would imagine, uh, um, I could just ask you what you've got, but I would imagine... You will have, I would say, three my channels, one for you, one for, for example, Bonnie, when you're doing the Bonnie Bulletin, and possibly a third one in case you've got a, a third guest. So let's work on three my channels to be safe. Then I would imagine you have got a 
you will have four stereo channels for your PC, your phone, your Sonos, and your, uh, how can I put this now? Your semi-liquidized vegetable and meat consumer. Um, so th- that's four stereo channels, or of course, you could put them into um, eight mono channels and just pan them left and right. So let's work on 11 channels for argument's sake. If you've got eight uh, mono channels or seven, if you've got the four stereo channels. Now, what I want to know is what are all the other other channels taken up as on your mixer? Okay, new topic. I wonder how many blind people battle to eat in public uh, with the right cutlery and utensils. I, for example, am very aware of people if I'm doing things like cutting a tough steak or um, dishing things up without feeling with the other hand, you know, how much food is on the spoon and exactly where to plonk it on your plate. Um, so I will typically, in a restaurant environment, have something that's easy to eat, like a burger or a pizza. And yes, it is high-carb diet. I am aware of that. I don't know how you feel about that. You're welcome to severely reprimand me about that. Um, so that is that is generally what I would do. I've got a friend who visited me at home on a particular occasion, and we were having something like some sort of squash with vegetables or something, and it was what was curry and rice or something like that. It was something that you would eat with a knife and fork, and he would eat with his hands. And I first thought he was battling with a knife and fork, so I said to him, can I get you a spoon? And he said, well, no, thanks. He's okay. Um, I didn't say much about it. I don't worry about it. He can do what he likes. He can eat with his feet if he likes. You know, he's, he's at my house. There's no rules and regulations. But it did get me thinking, what happens if he's in a public environment and he has to eat? Something like that. What happens then? What does he do? How does he cover it? Or does he just simply not eat? So what do, what do most blind people do? Are they okay with cutlery, with utensils, with ordering certain foods, with um, cutting things up? I, I I have got no idea, for example, how to cut meat off a bone. Like you, if you're having ribs, for example, how the hell do I cut the meat off the bone? So I will avoid having that type of thing unless there's someone with me that can you know, give me a hand. Some interesting topics there. Thanks, Gary. Yes, the bond between a guide dog handler and their dog is really special. And sometimes it can take a long time to recover when your dog eventually dies. That's a very tough thing about the whole guide dog thing, isn't it? And as the Queen, as in the one in England, famously said when she was counselling her grandchildren after the death of Princess Diana, grief is the price we pay for love, which is actually quite profound. Now, on the mixer, you've given me five channels more than I actually have, Gary. I have the Allen & Heath Z22FX, so 22 channels, not 27. One of those channels is taken up with the effects processor, so you can get reverb and chorus and different things of that nature. And one of the channels is also taken up with its onboard USB type audio interface. On this mixer, there are only two potential stereo channels, and both of those I have going into my Focusrite audio interface and that's connected to the PC, and I use those for station playlists. So when I'm using it for live DJ-type work, I have one of the station playlist players coming through one of those channels, and the other station playlist player coming through the other. That way you can manually mix. You don't have to rely on station playlists' automation facilities, which I prefer. 
I also have another fader set to the station playlist cart player for different effects and things like that. And then I'm running out of stereo channels, so I have another two faders for the voice track player in Station Playlist Studio. Yes, I have two of those channels for a stereo signal from my iPhone, another two from the Soup Drinker. I do have three microphones active at all times, the two Heil PR40s that we use for audio production, and I also have a Sony lavalier mic, and I use that when I'm here for video conferencing in my day job. I pin that lapel mic on me and then I can swing the uh, PR40 away from my face and that way people get a good look at me. We have a camera that's mounted here in the studio so I know exactly where to sit to be in the full view of the camera for all of the video conferencing work that I do. It's really important to me that I'm visible and looking good because obviously uh, all of my staff are sighted. I also have another two channels that Eloquence comes through and I have, uh, I think, a a few spare channels, not many, but a few. And we use those sometimes for additional microphones. And also, we haven't done it for a while, but sometimes we've done special Mosin Explosion shows where Mark Wilson comes into the studio and we plug keyboards into the mixer and we do live jamming and stuff like that. So there is a little bit of spare capacity. You always want that, though in a mixer. I think you should have a bit of spare capacity just in case you need to do something a bit unusual, but there's not too much spare capacity. I am using most of the facilities of this mixer. This mixer also has insert jacks, and I'm sort of using those as well to get direct audio from my microphones into Reaper, which actually allows me to record while other stuff is going out on the air. So I'm happy with this mixer. I've got it singing and dancing the way that I like it, And I know that I've got the capacity that I need. Now, regarding the question of eating, I must say I am very grateful that I received those skills of blindness at a school for the blind. So we had a really good long run on this show quite recently where people talked about their various experiences and variable experiences of mainstreaming versus schools for the blind. And I talked about the fact that I first went to a school for the blind for some years and then went out into the mainstream for the remainder of my education. And I'm really pleased that I got that combination because when I was at the school for the blind, we actually had classes in what they called living skills. And they really drummed good eating etiquette into you as a blind person. They explained cutlery. I mean, you can learn about the order of cutlery when you go to a restaurant And please, you should, you know, I mean, that's something we can all take responsibility for learning. I think something that perhaps some people struggle with because they were never taught, maybe because they went straight into a mainstream system and people didn't think to teach them these things, is the whole cutting food thing. And I know that sometimes I go out with blind people who will ask a waitress to tell the kitchen that they want a steak, but they want it cut up. Various things of that kind. I personally don't have a difficulty with that because of what we were taught when we were so young. And I'm really grateful for that because certainly in my job as a chief executive, you know, sometimes I find myself in situations where I do have to eat at some pretty nice establishments. I've uh, sat next at uh, different times to the Governor General, who is the representative of the Queen in New Zealand. It's really important for me to have those skills. And 
I guess it's never too late to acquire them, is it? Most blindness organizations have rehab staff who will come to you or you can go to them and you can be taught these sort of techniques of daily living, TDL. And as adults, I guess there could be some element of vulnerability in this, actually, as an adult calling up one of your blindness agencies and saying, listen, I just have never really been taught how to eat properly in public and I want to fix that. But I think it's a good thing to do. It's a good thing to gain that confidence because feeling awkward about it really is a very uncomfortable way to be, isn't it? And if you are looking to meet someone, a life partner, you know, you go out to dinner with them and you're not able to cope in that environment, it could be a deal breaker for that person. So it's worth getting on top of the eating thing. And I look forward to others' comments on that subject. It isn't just a blindness thing, though. I was talking to someone in the IT industry some years ago now who said to me one of the problems that they have is that you can find some really skilled, gifted software developers, for instance, but they've got no social skills whatsoever. You take them out to a restaurant or something, they don't know what to do, they don't know how to have a conversation, and uh, you know this has nothing to do with people who may be on the spectrum or anything like that. This is just people who have been stuck in basements <laughs> and don't have any of those skills at all. And so uh, I can't even remember what IT company I was talking to this person from, but they were saying that one of the things they actually had to introduce was social skills classes for some of these software developers who've spent so much time with machines that they don't know how to engage with people and that it really was impacting on their promotion prospects. Here's a very interesting article that I have permission to share from Debbie Armstrong about fixing your computer when you are not a wizard. I know that sometimes computers just have so much promise, but they can be a real pain in the butt when you're not a computer wizard and you don't know what's going on. I remember when Amanda and I were still together, my kid's mum and I were still together, and the computer would go down and Amanda would ask me to fix it. And I would eventually get around to fixing it. Sometimes it would be quite troublesome. And, <laughs> and Amanda would say, how do other people get on who haven't got people like you around to do this stuff? Anyway, Debbie says this. Is your computer acting strangely? You're not alone. But unlike most folks out there who can depend on family, friends and paid services, you really can do a lot more on your own than you think. As a tech at a community college, I help everyone from students and their cousins to tenured professors to figure out why the computer is wonky. The skill I teach most often is describing the problem. Did you know you are frequently halfway to a solution once you can explain your problem clearly? I remember a co-worker once who informed me she was getting a big brown error, but when she read the error message out loud, the problem was obvious. It told her the printer wasn't connected. And you know what? Its cable had slipped out of the back of her PC. So when trouble starts, it's time for you to stop, think, and write down a description of the problem. You might be lucky, like my co-worker, and solve it immediately. If you have difficulty writing, you can always dictate to a recorder. But the act of describing the problem is crucial because to ask or search for help, you'll need to understand specifically what's not working. 
For example, I plugged in my flash drive, but I cannot find its contents. Or, I saved a report, but I don't see all those changes I made today. Or, when I try to read my mail, the speech just says the name of the web address. Or, when I try to answer my phone with the two-finger double tap, it doesn't answer the call. A recorder is really handy here because you can record what your speech is saying or what you're reading off your screen using magnification. You can also make notes on the recorder as you attempt a task again, noting each step and what's happening at that point. Write down or record the exact message you are reading or your speech is reading. Write down what you were trying to accomplish and the steps you took. For example, I found the document attached to the email. I pressed enter and the document loaded in Microsoft Word. But when I press the arrow keys to read the document, I can only read the first line. While you are collecting this information, I can feel your frustration mounting. You want it solved, not described. But the act of describing has two important purposes. First, it forces you to think rationally a first step towards finding a solution. Second, it gives you terms you can search for or explanations you can share with tech support. Now your problem is clarified, you can try searching the web for a solution if the problem isn't affecting your web browser. If it is, consider finding an accessible computer elsewhere, such as a school, library or friend's house. It is helpful to include your screen reader's name in the search phrase so you'll find help tailored to your access technology. For example, JAWS, Microsoft Word page numbers pulls up some helpful tutorials on numbering and reading page numbers in Word. If something that was set up for you has stopped working, for example, a shortcut to your email, contact the person who set it up. Or, if they are no longer available, see if you can find a friend who will not only fix it, but explain and write down how it was set up in the first place. For example, when I set up email for my mom, I gave her a note explaining that I put a shortcut on her desktop to the Comcast website. This way, if Comcast changes its site or the shortcut gets deleted, she can show my note to any helpers who assist in the future. When you do have helpers, take full advantage of them by not just having them fix a problem, but explain what's happening. For example, my recorder is always ready if a friend is available to describe the layout of an unfamiliar screen. It might help me in the future to know that there are red check marks on items I haven't filled out or that the button I need to click is on the lower right. Good places to find free quality help are senior centres, ham radio clubs, public libraries, local colleges and other blind people who may be more knowledgeable. There's also an abundance of paid help from other blind folks who sell their tech support services online. If it's a problem with your access technology, do call their tech support. And armed with your clear explanation, you're likely to get quick and effective assistance. If it's a problem with Amazon.com, a Microsoft or Apple product, Those companies have special technical support for people with disabilities. If it's a problem with some software you use that doesn't have tech support, try searching its user manual or asking on an internet mailing list. If you haven't gotten help previously asking on the internet, 
Remember, that was before you learned to describe the problem without emotion, like Star Trek's Mr. Spock. Answers are more forthcoming when helpers can quickly grasp your issue. Many problems are simply caused by your own lack of knowledge. For example, the problem with Microsoft Word and email attachments is that they are usually in read-only mode. Access technology can't work with this mode. You either need to save the document with the Save As command so that another copy is generated, or turn read-only mode off in the current document. The keystrokes are Alt-F-I-E. But if you didn't know that fact, you wouldn't be able to read many email attachments. One of the best ways to crack the knowledge barrier is to simply keep a list of things you don't know. I don't know how to sort my files so I can see the most recently added ones first, or I don't know how to get rid of junk email, or I don't know how to get the phone to open those PDF files people keep sending me. Your I don't know list gives you a handle on what you need to learn, and you can do this at your own pace by reading free tutorials online, paying for training, asking friends for help, or searching YouTube for answers. Even though I'm a tech, I have an enormous I don't know list. And when I have a few free minutes, I always take a crack at one of the items on that list. I might search the web, or if another tech is in the office, I might ask him how something works. Another thing I do is keep a Rolodex in Braille, with a lowercase b, of every new keystroke I learn. You can use your phone, computer, voice recorder or file box, it doesn't matter. But none of us can remember all those keystrokes, and if you depend on them to access your computer, it's helpful to write them down. I often ask myself, is it Alt-Shift-S or Control-Shift-S? My senior brain cannot contain all that trivia, but my Rolodex can. And when trusted keystrokes fail, you can add them in your steps when you describe the problem. For example... I pressed F6 to go to the next window, but the cursor did not move. Lastly, if you feel really upset because you need to get something done and the computer isn't cooperating, just step away. Step away from the vehicle, Go for a walk, pour a beverage, take a warm bath. Nothing will get fixed when you are overwhelmed with stress. Very good. Another great contribution. Thank you very much, Debbie, and thanks for allowing us to share that article. One thing I would add is that these days, Ira is a fantastic resource for this sort of thing. And you can make five-minute calls uh, with Ira that are free, so you don't have to have a plan anymore to make basic use of Ira. And one of the things I really appreciate about it is that in the past, I might have made, say, a FaceTime call to a family member or something when I got myself into a situation where I really had no choice but to use a bit of sighted assistance with the computer. And these days, you can set up TeamViewer on your computer, have Ira log in, have a look at your screen, even control the computer if necessary, and get an awful lot done. And of course, if you use it regularly enough, you can get a plan and uh, have more access to Ira, but that's a great summary of options. So thank you so much. Hi, Jonathan. It's Mario from Croatia speaking. I hope that you and your family are uh, healthy and well. We are here in Croatia in unofficial lockdown. There is daily more than 4,000 people acquiring (laughs) coronavirus. That's a lot of people because we have 
only four and a half million people, million citizen uh, here in Croatia. I'm your faithful listener um, since I think 2011 when you have done uh, FS Cast uh, podcast. And I'm, of course, uh, listening to your Mosin at Large podcast now. Thank you for your great uh, show and the uh, quantity of the information that we get through this. Recently, one of your listeners asked about an uh, application or program for the computer to be able to listen to different uh, podcasts. And uh, indeed, there is one. It's called Speak on Media Suite. I found about that application uh, through a magazine called Talking Computers. That's a magazine from Great Britain that is edited by Mr. Terence Hadley. And uh, there is a series of podcasts there about using uh, Speak on Media Suite that is done by Mr. David Griffiths. So yes, there is a possibility to listen uh, all types of media, such as podcasts. You have possibility to listen through that to uh, tune-in radio, audiobooks, and RNIB's uh, publications. Mario, it's good to hear from you. Every so often I check into the statistics that Pinecast generates for us where they tell us where people are listening from. And it's so interesting to see the wide variety of countries that people hear Mosin at Large in. I don't think we've had a contribution from Croatia before, so that's fantastic. I'm really sorry to hear about the degree of COVID-19 you're experiencing there, and I hope that better times are not too far away. Now, Speak On Media Suite. Interesting. You can find this by going to speakon.org.uk. Make sure you put the UK at the end, otherwise you'll get to speakon.org, which is completely different. So speakon.org.uk is where you go, and then you can choose the link for Media Suite, and here's what their blurb says about it. Use your Windows tablet, laptop, or desktop as a self-voicing, feature-rich, multimedia player and reader using touch or keyboard. Radio podcast, music, audio, and text-based books, and in the UK, newspapers and magazines are all supported. Now, on the page here, it says that that was last updated in June of 2020, so that's fairly recently, but then when you look at when the latest release came out, that was in 2016. Of course, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not a program to investigate, because, I mean, heck, I'm still using a version of Winamp that was (laughs) released a lot earlier than that. So it might be worth checking out the Speak On Media Suite. Now, I also understand that if you are a JAWS user and you use Lisi from Hartgen Consultancy, that it is playing podcasts as well. So if you want to benefit from the various tools that Lisi offers, you can check out the Hartgen Consultancy website and take a look at the podcast support that is built into Lisi. And that website, of course, is Hartgen, that's H-A-R-T-G-E-N, Hey, Jonathan, Nick Zamorelli here. And as I record this, 
Assuming that you're playing it on the November 28th show, it is two days after American Thanksgiving. And so I hope your listeners in the U.S. had a very nice holiday, as well as anyone who may celebrate Thanksgiving in other parts of the world, including you. I know Thanksgiving uh, doesn't exist as a national holiday in New Zealand, but given Bonnie's country of origin, hopefully you got a chance to celebrate it as well. And if you did, I hope you had a great one. Uh, I'm recording my contribution this week using a brand new Lenovo ThinkPad T490 laptop. I love this machine so much that uh, this is the second one of these that I've purchased in just over a month. This one arrived on Friday, November 20th, and it's very similar to the one that I purchased a month ago, except that it has uh, 16 gigs of RAM instead of 8 and they both have uh, 512 gig hard drives. And I gifted my Lenovo Yoga C930 to my assistant at work. The only thing I'm disappointed in with this machine is that it doesn't have a fingerprint reader. And the one that I bought a month ago does. So I was a little disappointed in that, but it's not a deal breaker. Still has a 512 gig hard drive and an i7 uh, processor. And it has a really cool toggle function using the function escape key combination. And if you activate that, it gives you control over the function keys the way that they used to work in previous versions of Windows. And if you toggle it again, it goes back to the standard configuration today, giving you mute volume up and down mute of the microphone, Wi-Fi, and so forth. So very handy, really good use of software there. And uh, maybe as I get more familiar with the machine, I'll do a, a demo one of these days. But this is definitely my favorite laptop that I've ever owned. My contribution this week has a question and a comment. First, the comment. I understand and agree with your position that... The New Zealand government has seriously dropped the ball uh, in terms of accessibility with regard to your COVID contact tracing app. I really hope that they rectify this soon. Uh, but as upset as you are about that, understandably so, I'm a little bit surprised that you're not more upset about something unrelated to that. And that is the latest Apple flap about made-for-iPhone hearing aids and the iPhone 12 line. Uh, you mentioned it briefly, but frankly, I really thought that this was one that would get your dander up. Uh, I've heard a great deal about it in the mainstream tech, and it's not good news at all. So I'm wondering how you feel about that. Are you aware of a fix coming? And that's why we haven't heard more from you about this. I'm just curious as to how you're feeling now, several weeks into the release of the iPhone 12s, and especially now that you have one, what's going on there? My question has to do with notifications in Windows. Specifically, when you insert a removable drive into a USB port in Windows, you get a notification that says, click here to choose what happens with removable drives. And yet, the notification is nowhere to be found. It disappears as quickly as it comes up, and I can't find it. I've gone into Action Center where you can find most notifications, and it's not there. 
Is there a keystroke that I have to invoke in order to act on this notification? Have you experienced this before? What do you think? Well, congratulations on the Lenovo, Nick. I like those Lenovo laptops, and I owned ThinkPads for many years, had very good results with them. Based on my experience, we bought Bonnie a ThinkPad X1 Carbon maybe a couple of years ago, and we had no end of trouble with that laptop. Its battery exhibited some weird behavior on a couple of occasions, and we got quite badly burned because this particular model apparently is not a New Zealand model, and they never told us that when we purchased it from the store that we purchased it from. So every time it broke, the store had to send it away to places unknown overseas, and it was really quite disruptive, because when you have a laptop, you're pretty dependent on that laptop. In the end, after the second long stint away, we bought Bonnie an HP Spectre, and it's been flawless But I suspect that it was just a dodgy build or something like that, because generally I've had good luck with Lenovo and they do some really good quality stuff. So I'm sure you will enjoy that. You may not have heard last week's episode when you recorded this, Nick, because I did mention for a second time the issues with MFI hearing aids. And I did say that I was amazed that this got through whatever Apple calls quality control But I also did acknowledge that it's fixed, so you may have missed that. They fixed it very quickly, and I gave Apple credit for that. I did have a much longer rant planned had the problem not been fixed, but actually they did jump on it really quickly. I'm left wondering, if this had been an issue like the one we had back in, was it iOS 8, where for many weeks some blind people couldn't even answer the phone, Would it be corrected that quickly now if it happened again? Or is it just that there are so many more people using MFI hearing aids than use voiceover that it's a matter of a very, very squeaky wheel getting Apple's attention? Because, sure, the hearing aid bug was incredibly disruptive and it drove me nuts and it made me jump out of my skin when you got that unexpected burst of static. But the inability to answer calls when you rely on your phone for business and for safety, was just as disruptive, and that took a lot longer to fix. I'd like to hope that it's because Apple's lifting its game in terms of remedying anything that does slip through. But no, I think I gave it the attention that it deserved there. Now, regarding your question about Windows notifications, the Action Center works for me. And I know this because recently I purchased an APH Mantis, which you may know about. And when I connected that Mantis, of course, it came up with notification and it said, select what you want to do when you plug this in, because it appears as a drive in File Explorer. And I pushed Windows with A right away. It could be a timing thing, perhaps, Nick. Maybe it disappears quite quickly. But as soon as you hear that little chime to indicate that there's a notification there, If you press Windows with A to get to the Action Center and arrow down, it should be your first notification. It certainly is for me. And I was able to choose Take No Action, which is what I want to happen when I plug the Mantis in. And I have never seen that notification again. If anyone else has any thoughts on this, do feel free to share and enjoy that shiny new laptop, Nick. Hi, Jonathan. My name is Peter. I'm from Robin Hood County in the United Kingdom known to all you as Nottingham. I hope all is safe and well with you. I enjoy your programmes and podcasts and have done for some time. 
very informative and selective. Doesn't matter how long it is, I just listen to it. Because on Saturday evenings I'm afraid we have soccer in this country and I'm a big soccer fan, a big cricket fan as well. And yes, I agree with you, New Zealand should have won that World Cup. But hey-ho, I'm sure it'll right itself next time and we'll win properly. Presidential elections. Well, it was like the Antiques Roadshow to me. Just two grumpy old farts shouting at each other. What a terrible couple of people to have to choose from. A very belligerent man, or a man who just shouts. It's a pity Jimmy Carter's too old, isn't it, really? Now, I did like that bloke. Can't remember which party. I think it was a Democrat. In this country, that would be Labour. And he came over pretty well. All politicians, one way or another, will do some good and some bad. I was told by my father that under Conservatives' rule, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Under Labour rule, the rich get a little poorer and the poor get even poorer. And if you should be unlucky enough to have communists, the rich will become poor and the poor will become destitute and starve to death. So basically, you've got to make your own way in the world and stand on your own two feet. And as a blind person, I was lucky to be able to do that because I've worked all my life until I retired. Well, I worked for 40 years and joined the civil service. So you don't count that really. That was 20 years of rest and recreation as far as I'm concerned. As for the COVID-19 app, in our country, I was able to scan the QR code by using voiceover on my Apple XR. And... It worked okay for me. I enjoyed the demonstration of the RNIB talking microwave by, I think her name was Grace. And you were querying the fact that you are told when the door is left open. Yes, you know you've left the door open, Jonathan, but you have to remember, there's always a plonker somewhere. And that's why it's done, to avoid litigation. There'd even be some people who would read cooking instructions on a can and it says stand in boiling water so they probably take their shoes off and do likewise (laughs) you remind me peter and by the way it's nice to hear from you if you've been listening for this long thank you for finally breaking your silence your comment reminds me of the old joke about did you hear the one about the computer programmer who froze to death in the shower he read the instructions on the back of a shampoo bottle and it said rinse and repeat (gasps) (laughs) I always thought that was a hilarious joke. Anyway, that's my ridiculous sense of humour coming through. So, a civil servant. You remind me of the old men from the ministry. You remember that thing? Time to meet the men from the ministry. We used to get that in uh, New Zealand, you see, the old men from the ministry, Richard Murdoch and Derek Guyler. I'm sure you were much more competent than they were. And thank you for your very gracious acknowledgement that we, in fact, by all sensible definition, did win that Cricket World Cup. It is still traumatising to me, and it almost caused me to give up following the game of cricket altogether. I have to say, I was deeply, deeply Upset, And I don't mind losing fair and square. New Zealand has had its fair share of being thumped, 
thumped, and justifiably so, because we are a bit fickle. Mind you, England's a bit fickle too, aren't they? Remember how we thrashed England in the 2015 World Cup when it was out this way? It was all over before dinner time, mate. Uh, but I, I'm sure you're right. Uh, New Zealand is far too fickle for us to pull that off again in the next World Cup, I am afraid to say. Very cynical view of politics there, Peter. I must say, I have just finished volume one of Barack Obama's biography, which I recommend. It's called A Promised Land. And I thought, how refreshing it is to read someone who is thoughtful, compassionate, articulate, capable. So refreshing to read, given recent circumstances. And I guess I have to concede that I'm overly optimistic about people's ability to recognize when somebody whose politics they disagree with are still good people. America seems to be beyond that for many people, and that is really unfortunate. But it was so good to read that bio. And it made me realize that there was a time not so long ago when America and its leadership was profoundly admired. Reading the book actually gave me the same feeling that I got when I used to watch the West Wing during the George W. Bush administration. It sort of gave me hope. It saw me through. The other thing, though, about Barack Obama is, isn't it nice when you have a leader whose attributes one can aspire to? And when I think of how cool under fire he was during his presidency, how there was so much racism from the birtherism, of course, which Trump himself championed, to just people thinking there shouldn't be an African-American in the White House. It's not right. That's basically what it boiled down to. And yet, he was generally so cool in the face of that horrible behavior. Just such amazing emotional intelligence. And when I look at that, I think, gosh, I wish I could be more like that. And that is real leadership when you see someone exerting qualities that you can aspire to. Good to hear from you, Peter, and I hope you won't be a stranger and that you'll keep contributing. Thank you for listening. Hi, Jonathan. This is Scott from Arizona. Number one, the LiDAR technology that you covered in the most uh, recent podcast, I think it was, you might be interested to know, they're currently using it under the development of uh, this of something called Good Maps, which is uh, purported to be uh, supporting na- indoor navigation. So in other words, you're using your phone with the camera and the LiDAR technology to bring up an existing map of an indoor, like a public building or, or something that's that's been mapped out with the good maps process, whatever they're, uh, they go about doing it. It's a, uh, using the LiDAR technology. So that's uh, currently under development. Also, on the Mantis Q40, correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, but you can only save TXT files. And there is no onboard translation unless... I did see something in the manual, in the user guide I just read, about Braille profiles. Now, I'm assuming that determines how displayed Braille is going to be translated. In other words, if you're, you're in a text file that you've saved or retrieved and you you choose like contracted Braille, it's going to be 
that is how it will be um, displayed, in, in, as in contracted. I'm, I'm assuming that to mean that there is an onboard text to contracted Braille translator. I also understand that, in, that there is a the the Braille uh, input allows you to use the six dot keys. FDS, JKL is dots one through six, respectively. And uh, when you type in that, you're you're using your code of choice because it's going to appear on the display in whatever code you're typing in. And it's also going to save it as a TXT file in that same code. In other words, it's just going to be a TXT file with a bunch of Braille characters that as you've typed them in on the on the six dot input keyboard on this keyboard in six dot input mode. If you can verify all this for me, maybe on this on the upcoming podcast episode of Rose at Large, I'd sure appreciate it. I will do my best, Scott. I'm pretty sure I understand what you're after. First the input stuff. So when you are brailing into a document, I completely get what you're saying. Dots are dots. And so your question really is, is there translation going on? In other words, if you put the mantis into Braille input mode and you Braille in contracted Braille into a text file and you save that text file and then you open it in, say, something like Notepad on your PC because you've got your mantis connected to a drive, is what you've Brailled into the device in contracted Braille going to show up as gobbledygook or are you going to see it as plain text? And the answer is the latter. That's because this thing is smart and it does indeed have forward and back translation on board, which given what you're paying for this thing is pretty impressive. So if you bring a text file into the Mantis, you will see it in contracted Braille because it's forward translating. If you then go into the editor and your Braille profile is set to contracted Braille, which is the critical thing, and you press F12, to go into the Braille input mode where you use certain QWERTY keys and you start Brailing in contracted Braille, that is going to translate for you when you save it as a text file. It's a pretty smart cookie, this here, Mantis. Hi, Jonathan. Uh, Just a quick thing here, real quick, uh, while I'm thinking about it. First, what do you personally use to authenticate for your 1Password and use two-factor authentication on your 1Password account? Um, I'm a little nervous about authenticators from Google or Microsoft, and so I'm wondering what accessible option you have. I've been using 1Password to generate 2FA codes for other services, but obviously I know if you're doing that, you need to have a 2FA on your 1Password as well for two-factor authentication. Second of all, I just got an email this morning about something called Amazon Sidewalk, and uh, I'm a little bit concerned about it. I could see where it sounds like it might be helpful because they're saying it can be used to connect things like tile and stuff like that. But uh, it also sounds a little privacy uh, creepy. So, uh, yeah, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. I, I can see it having some interesting uh, accessibility ramifications, but... Uh, yeah, wondering what you think about that. Thanks, Sean. First, let's have a look at 1Password and two-factor authentication. I must confess I have not enabled this. And the reason why, even though I am a big fan of 2FA, is that effectively it's 3FA at that point. 
because the only way that you can sign in to 1Password on a new device is to have your master password and the encryption key. So I think the chances are quite remote of somebody having my master password and encryption key to sign into another device. But I understand why it's there. There could be some risk if, for example, a device is stolen and somebody manages to brute force their way in. I like to hope that my devices are secure enough with their login credentials for that to be extremely difficult. So at the moment, I'm not doing it. You have given me pause for thought, though, and I may think about doing it and just seeing what it's like. I must say that I find entering the encryption key and the master password so onerous when you're setting up a new device. And I don't object to it being onerous because I want it to be hard to get into my 1Password that I don't know whether I want to add that additional layer. In all the tech news that I have read, I've not had anyone sound the alarm about either the Microsoft or Google authenticators. I mean, they're just generating random keys, really. So I think it should be okay. Now, regarding Amazon Sidewalk, I've had a couple of inquiries about this. It's been talked about for some months. Actually, I can remember reading about Amazon Sidewalk in news articles I was reading late last year. So they've given us, I guess, plenty of warning that this technology was coming and now they really are ramping it up. So let's recap for those who don't know yet what it is. What they're trying to do with Amazon Sidewalk is establish a new kind of wireless network and the whole purpose of it is to make smart home capability much more longer range than they are at the moment when they're just stuck on consumer Wi-Fi. A Sidewalk bridge connects to your Wi-Fi network and it extends the connectivity range beyond what your router can output. In some cases, Amazon says this range could be half a mile or more. It works by using various communication protocols, such as 900 megahertz radio signals and Bluetooth energy for inter-device communications. The system will intelligently switch between these protocols depending on the range and power that's required. These sidewalk networks work a bit differently than your home Wi-Fi. The bandwidth in sidewalk networks is open for not just your own devices, but also your neighbors as well. So it's a bit like a local mesh network, but across a neighborhood. Whether you think it's groovy or whether you think it's creepy, you may be saying, well, phew, phew, I don't have a bridge and I'm not going to buy a bridge. Therefore, this doesn't affect me. But actually, that's not the case. Most Amazon device owners already have a sidewalk bridge in their homes. Recent Echo and Ring devices are soon going to receive an over-the-air update, and that's what people have been emailed about quite recently. And that over-the-air update is going to allow those devices to work as bridges for this sidewalk system. So should you turn this off, and you can, by the way, it is a simple process, as long as your Amazon Alexa app is up to date, to go in and turn this thing off. So if it creeps you out or if you think you don't want or need it, you can disable it very easily. But let's have a talk about what the benefits might be. One of the first and primary goals of Amazon Sidewalk is to extend the range of your smart home gadgets. What that looks like in practical terms could differ depending on your smart home setup. An example that's given by an Apple Insider article that I'm referencing to put this together is that a sidewalk network could make sure that outdoor security cameras or lights have a working connection, even if they're quite far away from your Wi-Fi router. 
because Sidewalk is a neighborhood kind of a mesh network and everybody's contributing to it, it could mean that a Sidewalk-enabled device will work out that it's actually going to get a stronger signal if it connects to your neighbor's Wi-Fi and not yours. Now, this has got some people concerned, and I got an email from Brian Gaff earlier in the week expressing concern about this, saying that he wonders whether this would actually fall foul of some people's agreements with their internet service providers, where you have to undertake not to let other people piggyback off your Wi-Fi. This is very limited and extremely constrained, and I'm told, having a look at the specs for this, that the most that a sidewalk network would consume of your bandwidth is about 80k per second, usually a lot less than that. And on a good quality broadband connection, 80k per second is nothing. I mean, it's a tiny amount of bandwidth. As Sean says, they do also mention tile. So if you drop a tile when you're walking around the neighborhood, this is the location tracking type device, then a sidewalk network could make it really easy for you to retrieve it. So there are all sorts of benefits being promised. I don't know how this is going to go. And I think the only way we will find out is by having it roll out and seeing what people make of this sidewalk system, how widely adopted it is, what benefits people perceive it as having. But if you don't want to be a guinea pig, I get that, and you can turn it off. One of the other benefits too, by the way, is that Amazon does store optionally your passwords for your Wi-Fi network in the cloud, which means that if you get a new Amazon device and you connect to it, then it's going to be a lot easier to establish the connection for the new device. In fact, our Fire TV does this. When we installed it, we got a prompt that said, is it okay if we store your Wi-Fi credentials in the cloud to make things easier in future? So this has been building and building for a wee while now. I'll be interested to see what people make of Sidewalk as it continues to roll out. To contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line. It's a US number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin.